I'm always amazed by how gentle God is with us, and he understands like our brains just kind of slid around, and that's everybody. That's Brent Hansen, who's in the 32nd Book Club this week. My name is Andy, and Brent's written an incredible book called Blessed Are the Misfits, and, and, and the subtitle is good, too. Great news for believers who are introverts, spiritual struggles, or just feel like they're missing something, and I think the one that really connected me on that is just missing something. And right, I mean, right out of the bat, you start talking about, you know, what do we do when we don't feel God's presence? Yeah, and that's a lot of us. And it's it's shocking to say, but maybe most of us, we don't feel God around all the time, or even most of the time. And it's kind of a secret, unfortunately. And I think it makes a lot of people feel like they must be doing something wrong, or they're just not spiritual enough, or they're such horrible sinners. And that's that's the problem. And I feel like we need to talk about it because I, I don't think that feeling is as important as we make it out to be. And that um, we're not lesser believers or we're not unspiritual if we don't have this incredible warm feeling or we don't get carried away during the music at a church service or something. Like some people do, and that's awesome. Uh, but the rest of us, like me, most of my life, it's not, I don't feel much of anything. I'm just more of an analytical person, and that doesn't make me less spiritual. So I th- actually think it's really awesome news for people if you ever struggle with that. I, I think the thing that I, I, I read here that you wrote, not only is it, you know, it's, it's okay when you don't feel God, but you actually write, you know, our feelings have nothing to do with whether God loves us or is still involved in our lives. I mean, that's, yep. even, that's a big step from, uh, you know, uh, if you don't feel that's okay, but it, nothing. No, they don't. I mean, because my, I believe God, I, I believe that God loves me whether I feel it or not. So if I'm putting stock in my feelings, like, well, today I'm not feeling him around. Or I feel like I'm praying to a wall. It doesn't mean he disappeared. It means that it can, it can mean a number of things, including, uh, let's say, how I'm getting along at work. It could have to do with, did I get a nap? Am I sleeping well? Am I hydrated? Did I eat well? Um, did my team just lose? I mean, there's all these things that go into our emotions, but we equate spirituality with emotion, and it's not fair. That's why I'm saying it's like all of these different things influence our emotions. Our emotions are up and down all the time, day to day, week to week. So it doesn't determine whether God loves me or not. And I, that to me is a huge lift because I can say to myself, look, okay, I'm feeling down today, but it doesn't mean God is disappointed with me. It just means that's how I feel sometimes. And his his love does not wax or wane based on whether I got a nap. You talk about in chapter five, blessed are the, are the unfeeling faithful. And I thought this was interesting. I mean, right from the beginning, it's such a great exercise. If you were trapped on an elevator with Jesus, what if you knew it would be a couple of hours before the rescue crew got there? You could talk about anything and what would you ask him? And I think, especially with what's been in the news recently with the tragedies, I think a lot of people would ask, you know, why, why God, mm-hmm. why did this happen? And, and what do you mm-hmm. say to people that, that have questions like that? Well, I don't purport to have great answers, uh, but I do know some things from the Bible, just even from the book of Job. Here's just humility, okay? If I don't see a reason for something, it doesn't mean the reason doesn't exist. And I know I just use a triple negative, but <laughs> I, just being humble means that I don't see everything. I don't see the big picture. And honestly, if I can say, well, I don't see why God would allow this. Therefore, there must not be a good reason for it. Like, well, didn't I'm overestimating my mind. Mm. Uh, sometimes reasons may exist that I don't understand. 
And in fact, in the book of Job, there was a reason. There was a backstory. Job didn't know about it. And at the end of the book, um, God rewards him for being faithful, even though he didn't know what the backstory was. He didn't get it. Didn't seem fair. It wasn't right in his mind. But he's like, I'm still not going to curse God. He was faithful. So there's no easy formula handed to Job, uh, but he is rewarded for his faithfulness. So we know that there is a backstory. That's what we're told. The second thing I know is how God feels about it. Like uh, we see in Jesus that he's entered into our brokenness and into our pain. So he's not telling us to detach from pain like some religions would tell you. In Jesus, he's running toward it and he's acknowledging it that we're, it's not okay. We're not okay. Um, something's horribly wrong in the world. So, you know, in my view, Christianity doesn't offer me a, a sing songy easy answer to things, but it does show me how God feels about it. And it does leave open the mystery of going, I don't have to know the reason for everything. I just know I need to be faithful in it. I hope that makes sense. It, maybe that, again, that's not a mathematical answer, but no one has one anywhere. Um, at least Jesus acknowledges the brokenness that we see other people want to go, Oh, we're all good. No, apparently not. Right. Well, and I, I think, you know, that that's the, the overarching, I think, uh, just theme of your book is just that we're all looking for answers. And, and, you know, that's part of the, being this misfit is that we can't put ourselves or Jesus or God into a box. And I, I mean, just, you know, continuing on that faithful thing. I don't know how many people brand know, Mother Teresa's story, mm -hmm. how you shared it, and how incredible that is. This person that we all hold up so highly as someone who said, thanks, well, she had it together. Mm -hmm. I mean, she really, I mean, spiritually, she was maybe even more empty than you and I feel. Yeah, she was in a desert for decades. And I've noticed a lot of people like this, where Maybe at the beginning of the relationship with God, they get these feelings or they're super excited and they equate that with, okay, I'm doing the right stuff. And then when that feeling fades, they think, what have I done? I've alienated God or something. He's, he, he's walked away from me, but it, that's not the case. And it took Mother Teresa decades of writing to her spiritual mentor, 40, 50 years to finally understand like this isn't what spirituality is according to God. See, we associate spirituality with these feelings. Spirituality, according to Jesus, for instance, is obedience. He wants us to obey him. He wants us to put his words into practice. And that's something I can do. I can be daily faithful. Even if I'm not feeling it, I'll keep showing up, uh, keep serving my family or the people who come across my path, even if I'm not feeling it. And that is what God considers faithful. And that's spiritual to him. So that's actually great news for me because I don't have these feelings like some people have, or I just feel spiritual all the time. And she set a great example, but there's so many other believers too that go through the same thing. And I, I just really want people to know that in case they're going through it to know it doesn't mean God's given up on you or he's not using you or anything like that. Another angle that I don't know a lot of us have thought about when you're talking about being faithful and, and what that looks like. And in the Bible, it talks about the fruit. You will know us by our fruit. You have a really cool analogy that I'd love for you to share it. Sure. I think because we're good business people, like in this country, we're known for business and we start this and that, and it needs to show a profit and that grows. And that's, we look at that and we transfer that to fruit. Like, well, if I'm, if I'm bearing fruit, then I'll reach 10 people or our church, if it's fruitful, we'll have a hundred more people or my ministry will reach this many more people. Like, but that's not fruit in the Bible. 
the fruit in the Bible is the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, gentleness, things like that. And again, I think that takes some of the pressure off because a lot of people will look at you and go, or look at themselves and say, well, I'm not, what, am I, what have I done? Well, God wants us to be more loving and more peaceful and more gentle. It's not like we can just look at something and go, oh, it's successful. Therefore, it's bearing fruit. No, somebody may be abusive. Admit the leadership may be narcissistic or totally messed up, and it might be growing. But that's not, that's not necessarily the fruit that the Bible is looking for. There's an ancient like African proverb about that, and that is if you shake a tree, you find out what kind of tree it is because the fruit will fall from it. And I have found that in my own life, when I'm bumped into, when someone shakes me, uh, they're going to find out what I'm really made out of. Like That's when you find out somebody's fruit. When uh, I'm crossed, when I don't get my way, um, all that stuff. That's fruit. Am I still being patient and loving? Can I still be joyful when things aren't happening when I want? Like Now we're talking. That's real fruit. And I think it's interesting as you were talking about what's the return on investment. And again, another eye-opener for me and maybe for a lot of others is that evangelism is not maybe necessarily what we're all supposed to do all the time. Well, I know, and this sounds totally crazy, and it's like, just give me a chance here before people get too upset, but this is a relief to some people, okay? And that is, evangelism is a gift, and it's important, but it's a gift that some people have, and not everybody has. So there's, it's also true, people go, well, hey, Jesus gave the Great Commission to his disciples, go into all the world, you know, teaching them to obey the things that I've said and making disciples. Like, he did tell the disciples that, and they did go into all the world. I was in, in India, and I was actually at the place where Thomas is purported to be buried, like um, near Chennai on the beach. Like, they went into all the world. But Paul, in his letters to churches, he's not telling them to leave their homes. He's not telling them that's your job too. Everybody has to go into all the corners of the world. You have to leave and you have to be an evangelist. This is something that Jesus told his disciples and they did it. But there are people within the church that have the gift of evangelism, but not everybody. Unfortunately, what happens is because we like to grow things and we think this, it's all about that, um, we've kind of put that onus on everybody, even if they don't have that gift and they wind up feeling horribly guilty about it because they don't come by it as naturally as, as some of our our you know, evangelists that we know of that are really talented writers or speakers. Like that's not everybody's thing. It's not that we shouldn't talk to people about our faith. Of course we should, we should share it. But the idea of evangelism being a gift is that is for some people. And I applaud them that not everybody has that thing. And we're all called to all these different one another's to build each other up. And there's, there's different members of the body and we shouldn't say to the other members of the body, you all have to have the same gift I have. That winds up just being a huge guilt trip for people. Yeah. To the point where I, I'm 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 pretty secluded in a Christian bubble here, you know, working in Christian radio. But I my my one little hobby outside of Christian the Christian world is I play competitive pinball. It's it's a thing, <laughs> and so awesome, it's, yeah, it's, it's great. I love it, and you know, That's a lot fantastic. of people, yeah, and a lot of people that that I play with do not have any faith background, and I always feel yeah, when I play, I mean, I always feel guilty if if I'm not. I don't know, being Jesus is enough or saying, hey, you should invite him to church or something. <laughs> but- yep, I know. I know what you mean. And like, again, it's not that Jesus isn't a part of our lives and we're willing to talk to him. But again, there's this, there's things I've read in Christian literature and books from prominent people that are like, you ought to be out there and you need to declare the name of Christ and you should tell people this and you should be sharing the gospel every day. It should be totally natural to you. Well, it's not natural to everybody. Mm-hmm. 
it's just it's it's just not um, talking about spiritual things right off the bat is real natural. Some people they got a gift for it, and I applaud that. But but I've seen wonderful things come out of just patiently being friends with people until you like them and you're part of their world, and they can see there's a difference. Mm-hmm. And over time, uh, you invite them into your friendships and your network of believers, and they become a Christian. I've seen this happen. Um, I think it's very effective and wonderful and a lot better than forcing something out of guilt. We feel like we all need to be Francis Chan. We've all got to be able to go on the street and strike up these conversations. Like that's a gift for Francis Chan. And um, we should love and support that, but that's not everybody. All right. So, you know, kind of on that same vein, we're, I think we're going to talk a lot about guilt today and <laughs> things that we feel guilty about. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and let's yeah, break good. through that guilt. Let's do that. Uh, one, one thing I've always struggled with is prayer. And I, I did this on the air last year where I, I just challenged myself and challenged others to just set a five minute timer and try to pray for five minutes. I honestly, I could, I could barely do it. I think I did it one day. Mm-hmm. I thought I'll do it at night before I go to bed. And I think I did it one night and I just, then I fell asleep the other nights. Yep. Yep. But, but you, you talk about how, totally get it. um, I think I could do this, a, a 10 second prayer. Why, why do you recommend that? Oh, I just, I think 10 second prayers are so underrated. Um, first of all, Philip Yancey said, prayer is the subject that gets talked about the most when actually being done. We talk about it more than we do it. And I agree with that in my own life. I'm probably guilty of that. But I've found that 10 second prayer is so freeing and it accomplishes so much because uh, we're more apt to do it when we realize it only has to be 10 seconds. It's forcing us into humility and understanding who God is. It's, it's reminding us that he's in the details of our lives while we're driving or while we're doing our work or whatever. Um, it's bringing him to mind again. Just, just the slightest bit of attention is very honoring to God, apparently. Hmm. Just, just turning our attention to him for just the nod of attention to him is very pleasing to him, I gather. The other thing is I noticed something, and that is Jesus told us how to pray. And when he said, hey, pray like this, and he's showing us how to pray in public at, at, at any rate, he's like, okay, here's how you pray. Our Father, our, okay, so there's lots of things that we can take away from the Lord's Prayer. But one thing I rarely hear anybody talking about is Jesus is giving us an example of here's how to pray publicly, and the prayer lasts 25 seconds. That's it. Like, how come we didn't learn that from them? Keep it short, uh, especially in public when other people are around and their minds are drifting. And you know their minds are drifting because your mind drifts too. Mine does within the first 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. I know it drifts. So I've just learned the value of freedom of going, I, this doesn't have to be this long thing. And I wind up praying more than I would otherwise. And I, I wish people would understand how valuable that is because I do think we wind up praying more. We, we, we might wind up putting our attention back on God more. And it's a huge guilt lift. I also highly encourage people in public, if you're praying, keep it to 30 seconds. See if you can, because people's mind drift. I asked this on Twitter, among my Twitter followers, so it's a lot of believers. And I did like one of those little polls, and the vast majority said it's within the first 60 seconds of their prayer, their mind has drifted off. Hmm. So God is so faithful with us and so tender and understanding when he gave an example of how to pray, he didn't go on for six hours. He went 25 seconds and said, do it this way. Well, I'm, I, for one, am very thankful for that. I wonder how long the prayer was when um, they were blessing the food to feed the 5,000. 
because they were hungry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder about that too. Like I'm always, I'm always amazed by how gentle God is with us. And he understands like our brains just kind of slid around and that's everybody. I actually have a gift for concentration. Like I'm in general, I'm able to concentrate more than most people. I just, that's maybe to a fault. Uh, but my, my mind drifts about like a bird just flits about. I've had to teach myself too to take whatever my brain drifts to and fold that back into the prayer. Not, not give myself a guilt trip like, oh, you failed. You, you prayed and couldn't last. You couldn't. I just, because apparently whatever my mind is going to is something that is on my mind and on my heart. So I ought to just fold that back into my prayer and be honest with God and go, okay, here's something I need to pray about because clearly this is something I'm, I'm thinking about. One group of people will say, well, I, I can't pray. I'm not very good at it. So then we, we, we talked about that 10 seconds. That's all you need. Just quick prayers to God. But then there's an, uh, probably another group of people. And I think we're all in there at some point that we're not even sure it's effective. And you talk about that. Yeah. Does God answer prayer? Yeah. Well, well, one of the things intellectually I struggled with, with praying was like, well, if God knows everything, why doesn't he just do it? And that sounds logical. But C.S. Lewis pointed out, like, well, that's that's the case with everything. I mean, there's hungry people in the world. Well, then why doesn't God just feed them? Because he allows us to be a part of this. And he is allowing us to interact with him. He wants us to ask for things. Like, this is how relational he is. It's stunning. It's hard to get my mind around, but he's waiting for me to ask for stuff. And Jesus, in two different places in the Bible, it's shocking what he says. Like, he's encouraging us to be relentless, even borderline annoying by continuing to ask God for stuff. So, uh, yeah, it may seem like, well, why am I even doing this? Because God, he's waiting. He wants this in action with us. And it it does matter, just like uh, actually giving money to feed other people matters. Just on a side note, um, especially right now after the tragedy, you know, now we have people when there's tragedies, they'll get angry and they'll say, your thoughts and prayers mean nothing. They do nothing. Mm -hmm. You have to do something else. And it's so disheartening as a Christian to hear that. And I know Mm -hmm. it's mostly people that don't have a faith background. I mean, that's everything. Prayer is supposed to be everything. Well, to cut people some slack on that, I just realized like a lot of people, they, they call it prayer and meditation. So even people who don't practice a religion or they say, I don't necessarily believe in Jesus or God, they'll, they still will say they pray. So hmm. people confuse it with meditation. And it's true that if meditating, I'm just clearing my mind or I'm just trying to be mindful. I don't believe that helps a person who's in pain if I'm being mindful in my own room. So if somebody thinks that's what prayer is, see, I don't believe in the power of prayer per se, because it's not a magical incantation. It's not just saying special words that interact with forces in the universe. It's like, I believe in the power of God and I'm asking him as my father to do something and he has the power to do it. So if someone understands prayer to just be meditation or just sending positive vibes, which a lot of people do, I can understand going, that didn't help. Um, or if somebody doesn't believe in God, they'll think, well, that doesn't help. But I think a lot of the confusion is just people thinking we're just saying the words, thoughts and prayers, or we're just saying prayers go out and we're not actually doing praying. And that too is part of it. I love this. Um, you're talking about if someone's afraid that they're going to fail, if they, then maybe they don't pray because I, I don't know how to do it well. I love what you say about um, failing at prayer that you say, I don't think there's many ways to fail at prayer besides not praying. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really, again, just trying to free people because I think it's the, the dirty little secret is I think it's most believers mm-hmm. who feel like they're failing at this. And I, I want to go, this is all of this. God understands he loves us. He still wants us to try to interact with him. It, he values it just like any father would with his children. I want my daughter and my son to talk to me. So the failing would be the saying, well, I'm so bad at this. I just give up. No, no, no. I'm not going to give up. Um, and I know it's a struggle, but this is what faithfulness is like. And in the, in the interim, there's going to be a time when we are with God and we're going to, there's not going to be any doubt, but for this interim, um, it's really important for us to be faithful and continue to talk to him. So, uh, yeah, I do try to keep encouraging people because I think we're all, almost all of us are really, really bad at it, but we just don't talk about it very much. Well, and you talk about that that struggle a little bit more later on in the perpetual struggler strugglers struggle, struggling saying strugglers chapter, um, and uh, you talk about that when we struggle, it doesn't mean we're failing. And I think this is interesting, and I I would love to hear what you think about this too, because I I've been thinking about this in my own life. So often, I will look at if things are going smoothly in my life, I think that's where God wants me to go. That's not, that's not always, that's not necessarily the case either. Sometimes that's the opposite. So, but, but it could be either way. It could be smooth and that might be where God wants us to go. And it could be a difficult time that you're struggling with. And God still wants you to keep kind of pushing against that. Yeah. He wants us to be faithful wherever we are. Like I've just realized that too. We are so into my big plans for next year, this you know, 10 years, I'd like to 20 years or my plans. Like he's telling us to be faithful with what, what he brings across our path today and then see what happens. But it's today. Like whoever he's bringing across my path, quit thinking in these huge terms. The other thing is about the struggle, what I was trying to get across to people too is, let's say you're struggling with a a certain thing you keep falling back into that you don't want to. It's a habit. It's destructive. You know it. Um, And you go a few months uh, without doing it, and then you fall back into it. It doesn't mean you've completely blown it like the fact that you're continuing to struggle with this indicates that God's at work in your life. If there was no struggle, we'd have a problem. If you just hand, if I just hand myself over to something, now we got a problem. Like it's not a struggle anymore. I just do it. That's the problem. <laughs> Being human. Uh, a friend of mine said, it's like taking a bike ride and riding five miles and falling into the ditch and then getting back up. Well, I guess I got to start all over. No, you don't. You made it five miles. That counts. Yes, you fell in the ditch. Now get back up and just keep going from here. Uh, but keep going. Don't just lie there. So what I've seen from a lot of people is they're going, oh, I'm still struggling with this. I'm like, well, good. Keep struggling, man, because that's, that's heroic. Uh, don't give up. And I think God's pleased with our struggle because he, he's aware that we're trying to please him. <laughs> I don't think any dad gets mad when his kid messes his pants or falls down or something when they're, when they're babies. Uh, he's glad they're trying. I think we should cut ourselves a little slack on that. And just keep going. I think this is probably the biggest need. You may disagree with this. Uh, the, one of the biggest needs in America, especially uh, with Christians and church culture, to actually have real community. And you yes. have a whole chapter about this. People that do church anyway. And you have, you, you know, it's like a top 10 list pretty much of all the reasons. 
Um, what's the biggest reason that speaks to you of why we need to not just have community, but, you know, really try to, you know, make it a priority? Well, a couple things. Uh, number one, uh, our culture is not working. And I'm not talking about church culture. I'm talking about our larger culture. It's failing. And people are starting to catch on to this. And you can even watch TED Talks or hear things on NPR and New York Times about talking about mass loneliness mm-hmm. and depression that results from it and meaninglessness and suicide rates and drug abuse rates are going through the ceiling in our country. I saw something today that was about, get this, this is people between 18 and 29 in the UK. So they're a little bit ahead of us in the post-Christian thing. But as people between 18 and 29, the percentage of people in that age range who said that their life is meaningless was 89%. They think their life is meaningless. So we have, we have developed a culture that's all about freedom. It's all about don't tie me down. You know, I'm not going to commit to this. I'm not going to commit to that. I'm going to stay a free agent and everything. I'm not going to be – well, you can't have community and have freedom at the same time. Hmm. If you're going to have community, it means you're committing to people. And when things are difficult, you stay. Well, that's, you know, hmm. that's not our culture now. And again, the suicide rate, the depression rate, that's, that's the isolation, the loneliness, the anxiety – is through the roof in our culture because we've done that. We've chosen freedom at all costs. And if somebody's a problem, I'll flake at the last second. I won't go. I'll commit to something and I won't show up. That's our culture. So you, you can see what happens when we don't have community. So that's one thing that jumps out to me. It's very, very healthy. If a human being is going to flourish, I have to be in community with people. And that means at inconvenient times, I show up anyway. And that is very countercultural right now. The second thing that I have learned is if I'm not in real community with people, nobody knows me for real. Mm-hmm. And if nobody knows me, they can't ever set me straight. Mm-hmm. So if I'm starting to do something that's destructive or I'm not who I should have been, or I disappear into myself, or I just play video games all day, or I do things that I'm capable of doing, no one can call me out. I've got to have that to flourish. So we will justify anything in isolation. And you can see the people who perpetuate these horrible crimes and they're coming out of isolation. Mm-hmm. That's what they're coming. And they have justified it in their heads because we will go so far askew in our own brains. This is why we're made for each other. Jesus described us as sheep. And I was just reading about sheep behavioral characteristics yesterday <laughs> for whatever reason, but sheep if they're not together, it says if a sheep is not with the flock, it becomes overwhelmed by anxiety and stress. Jesus described us as sheep. So we think we should be free agents. It doesn't work. So we need each other. Well, and you talk about this later on in the book. Um, uh, as you reach out to you know, the misfits and the skeptics and those who don't, who don't know where else to go. And so many people have had you know, bad church experiences, Brandt. Mm-hmm. And just walk away. And I mean, you as a skeptic, I know you've seen it, you've experienced it. What made you decide to, you know, keep keep going after faith and 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 and, and it not giving up on the church? Yep, two things. And you're right. I've seen extreme hypocrisy. I've lived through this. I've got the bio of somebody who's a militant atheist. That's my bio. I'm not one, but if you just read my biography, you go, of course he is because of what he's been through and what he's seen repeatedly and grew up with um, in the church. So long story short, two reasons why I'm a believer. Um, The first thing is the alternatives 
I'm skeptical about as well. A lot of people are just skeptical about Christianity, but they don't apply that skepticism to the alternatives. I have, and I find them wanting. Um, I don't think anybody else accounts for human brokenness like Jesus does. It's either, oh, we're all okay, really, deep down, we're all good. Well, that I'm looking at human history, I don't see that at all. I'm looking at human behavior now, I don't see it. I think something's really messed up, and I think most of us really intuit that. I don't see anybody else acknowledging it and then doing something about it like Jesus does. So I see the problem, whether people want to call it sin or not, they know the world's messed up big time. Jesus acknowledges it, he calls us out on it, and then he sacrifices himself for it. He actually provides hope in this and healing. The second thing I would say is, is Jesus himself. He's so compelling, and I'm somebody, again, as a skeptic, he is so compelling, and he says, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Like, if you want to know what God is like, you look at me. And the way he treats people, like the, the widows, the vulnerable children, women in their culture, the way he turns things upside down, the way he calls out hypocrites, the way he stands up for the defenseless. Oh, man, I, I like if that's God, that's incredibly good news. Like just reading about Jesus himself, not, not talking about church culture, but Jesus himself is so compelling. He compels me to believe in him. And from there, I have to work out forgiving other people, including other church people, because of what he's done for me. That's the basis for it. So um, that's why I'm still a believer. Long story short, there's a bunch of reasons I could get into why I don't believe in, in some of these other worldviews, but that's that's the short story. And you can read way more if you dive into this book, Blessed Are the Misfits. So one more for you, Brand. We've, we've reached the end of the book. <laughs> we, just kind of, <laughs> we went through it chapter by chapter. Awesome. And uh, yeah. I, I think I think it's great how you you, you end with um, towards the end talking about you know as you were, you were just talking about in the interview everyone's lonely and that's I think a, a natural feeling especially of and we talked about this a little bit earlier you know if if you don't feel like you connect with God like others do you know I mean these people that are heroes in the Bible, they had the same experience. And, and you talk about yes. this, this yearning that's, that's actually yep. a good thing. Yes. I wonder about that because some of us do yearn for more of God. And we're like, we see people that seem ecstatic, like, Oh, I felt God today. Man, that was, that was so powerful. That, that worship service or whatever. And I'm like, I don't feel ecstatic. I, I want more. I'm frustrated. Actually. I want more. Well, I think, that might be okay. In fact, I think it might be good because that's what happens when you're in a love relationship. You want more. You are a little bit frustrated. And we are in this weird in-between time where we've given our lives to Christ if we're a Christian. We've said, okay, I'm covenant. You know, I've got this covenant with him. It's like being engaged. In fact, that's exactly the sort of language that Jesus used was betrothal language. But the wedding hasn't happened yet. We haven't had the wedding feast. So we're in this in-between time where we're not fully there and we're, we're looking through a glass dimly right now so if you feel that distance where and you feel like i must be doing something wrong i don't I'm not necessarily i think we feel that distance because that distance is going to be traversed eventually and we will be ecstatic then and that is the fulfillment we're all looking for and i don't think we're going to necessarily all find it right now and it's not because you failed it's not because i failed it's because this is the condition of the world right now 
And again, there's something wonderful about being faithful until the king comes back, the groom comes back and gets his bride. Like, that's going to be awesome. Um, but for now, we're, we're tasked with being faithful. We're not tasked with feeling stuff all the time. Great words from a great man. It's Brent Hansen, and his book is called Bless You the Misfits. Thanks so much, Brent, for hanging out uh, in the 30-second book club. And coming up next week on the book club with Back to School already here, there's some simple things that you can do to have a better relationship with your preteens and teens as they navigate the difficulty of growing up in this age and this culture. Shannon Perry will be talking about her book, Stand, on the 30-Second Book Club.